Welcome to the People First Leaders Podcast. My name is Doug Utberg, Marine Corps veteran, founder CEO of ExpenseReviews.com, and I have absolutely nothing to sell you. The purpose of this commercial-free show is to honor the leaders who approach life as go-givers by putting their people and customer value first. Stick around until the end of the show, and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in about 20 minutes. Let's go. We have Adrizio with us today. So he's a very unique fellow. So what he did is, well, first of all, he grew up in San Domingo, very, 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 very poor. But second, he ended up founding and then selling a payment solution to Y Combinator and is now publishing a book called The Underdog Founder. But anyway, I don't want to steal all of his thunder. So Adrizio, I would like you to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about kind of your story and how you got to where you're at. Thank you so much, Doug. Excited to be a part of, of your podcast and excited to tell like my story to your audience. So looking forward to it. So yeah, I'll dive in quickly to my story in kind of a over a two, three minute that makes sense. So I grew up in Santo Domingo, that's exactly um, I'm calling you from. My first job was selling Guayaba on the streets of my house. I used those to buy candles and because electricity wouldn't be consistent mm-hmm. in my house. I grew up with my mom and my brother at age 11. We immigrated from Santo Domingo to the South Bronx and then Harlem, where I started living with my dad. But between ages 11 and age 17, I got pretty much experience a world of things from gun violence to sexual assault to police brutality, all before I took age 17. And I had two choices, either be a victim or can be a victor. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do the latter. So I wanted to just escape. So I signed up and joined the U.S. Air Force to become a fighter pilot. Did that for about a year. I was set off to ship to a boot camp in Texas and decided to typically go absence. My parents needed me to help make ends meet. We're not in a good financial situation. So I dropped out of the Air Force in college at the I'm time. I'm curious to know how you do that because I was in the Marines and we were told in no uncertain terms, once you sign, that's it. You're not getting out. Yeah, I was in the ROTC. Okay. I was in the ROTC. I was in the ROTC. So you do that while you're in college and after yeah. the first year, you go to boot camp. But yeah, I was okay, definitely not it. as hardcore as you guys were. Got it. But all my respect. Because yeah, that's what they saw. They said, USMC, you signed the contract. And then that means you're here. You're either yeah. going to certain. You're either going to do your time, or you're going to be dead. One of those yeah. two things is happening. Yes, yes. the former. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you made it. You are you're wild of you. So I went up actually dropping out of both and taking a job at an JFK Airport, and I did that for the next six years, man. I did that. And by the time I had turned 22, I decided to go back to college. No school would take me, so I went to community college. And I thought that I wanted to pivot away from my career as panic. And I learned about Wall Street, and I was enamored by the success and mm-hmm. glamour and the ambition behind it. But no aircraft mechanic from the South Bronx with an accent on the bank, right? Everyone told me, no, I couldn't do it. So I wound up applying to 30 different positions, got no uh-huh. hole to all of them. And I wound up getting an opportunity as an intern, and that completely changed my life. I went from coming home at 2 o'clock in the morning, smelling like jet fuel, to wearing a Brooks Brothers suit, having a secretary, and never going back to being a mechanic. This is my path here. And I wound up getting a stint at JP Morgan as an investment banker. Completely loved it. Worked 80 hours a week with a big smile on my face. And then I noticed that my 
classmates at JP Morgan were all from Ivy League schools, and I wanted that same exposure. But no school was going to take a chance on me, so I had to take get a really high way on the GMAT, which mm-hmm. is uh, the test you take. Yep. I wound up, the average course is 750. I wound up getting a 570, but I applied. And lo and behold, I got into the Wharton School with a 570. Wow. Wound up being the lowest score of that entire class. So I felt like I had a bit of chip on my shoulder, a lot to prove. Wound up going to school, worked really hard. And after two years, I felt like winning power to uh, start a, to start something new. So I went up to find a tech company to kill Western Union because I wanted to fix the maintenance, going up on the maintenance. So Western Union, man. So... Company was called Rebality. Well, and, and, we went, and for people who are listening, when you're saying grew up on remittances, walk us through that a little bit. So, yeah, so remittances is the act of sending money from a developed nation to an undeveloped uh-huh. nation. So, in, in, the, in the case where I grew up, I grew up in Santo Domingo, and my dad lived in New York. He would send money from New York to Santo Domingo to help us make ends meet. And then when I immigrated, I used to send money the same corridor, but tell my aunt and grandma. Just for reference, if you want to send money with Western Union, what does that cost? Typically, it can cost up to 10% if you do it the traditional way, which is going to an actual cashier because they charge a fee mm-hmm. and then they charge a foreign exchange fee behind that, which typically you don't see. And there's also the cost of having to pick the money up. And there's also like a, a safety issue there because you're picking the money up and typically not safe places here. So I want So, because I'm just thinking, so you, okay, you have a 10% Western Union fee. You probably have a 4X fee that's going to, you're probably going to lose another couple of points there. You have a, let's just say that you're, it's going to, I mean, all said and done, you're talking between like, you know, say 15 and 20%. I mean, that's almost what it costs the mob to wander money. Yeah, exactly. So you're like getting money from a loan shelf or something. Every single mob, imagine that. So I wanted to make it streamlined and instead of sending money in cash, send the money to, to pay bills or mm-hmm. to pay groceries. And with that idea, we created a Regali. And got into Y Combinator in 2013 in the first Latino to get into Y Combinator. For the next eight years, we just ate that and just swung in a wall of shelves, real up a lot of ebbs and flow. But wound up growing the company, pivoting away from that model on the new model, which was more B2B, called the Arcus, that grew substantially to become one of the payment, biggest bill payment platforms in all of Latin America. And when we were raising a Series B during the pandemic, I got approached by MasterCard, and I wound up filling the company with MasterCard in 2021. Okay. All right. So now, just walk me through. That's quite a journey you just described. Walk me through. What were some of the things that you learned along the way, or what are some of the lessons you'd want to pass on? I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is just the power of getting to the right room. Figuring out what is the room of the smartest people you can find where you feel pushed and a little bit of imposter syndrome. That's the right room to be in because that's the room that's going to allow you to learn the quickest. Whenever you're in a room where people are at your level or behind you, mm-hmm. you're probably going to stay at that level. So the example that I that I was making is, you know, when I went from being a mechanic, all those six years, like it was around people who were not necessarily the most ambitious, didn't want to thrive for more. But the minute I did an internship in investment banking, everybody was ahead of me. I was being the mm-hmm. And that was a great feeling because... If I stay there long enough, I'll ultimately either kind of, you know, get jettisoned out or I'll step up the front of the line. And that's what wound up happening. And I kept doing that again and again and again from JP Morgan to Wharton to Y Combinator. Yeah. One thing that I would append onto that as well is that if you are an ambitious type of person, I would highly recommend move to where the movers and shakers live. 
I don't care how much it costs in rent. That is, if there was one, if I could choose one thing to do over, I'm from the Portland, Oregon area. My family's here. I've spent my whole life in the Portland, Oregon area. I was fortunate to have a career at Intel for uh, nearly 20 years. But if there was one thing I was going to do, if I was starting all over, I'd be doing startups, new things, and it'd either be New York or LA. And I don't care how tiny and dingy of an apartment it would have to be or how much over my income it would have cost. Move, live where the movers and shakers are. Cannot overstate how important that is. Zip code. It's zip code is such a your twenties. Zip code is the name of the game. Like move yeah, to a big exactly. city. Exactly, and yeah, especially if you're young, zip code is probably the actually no, it's literally the number one. Like if you take someone in their twenties, the zip code they live in is the number one predictor of where they're going to be twenty years from now. Exactly, hundred percent. Yeah, and that, that's you know when I was in in New York and I went to Wall Street, that was. What I did when I used to tech, I moved to Silicon Valley to be a white dominant. Yep. So yeah, so that's why I came up with the concept of like getting into the right room and don't be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room because that'll ultimately prepare you to be one of the smartest person in the world. And another thing I've learned it's figuring out what your fuel is. Especially early on, I went through a lot of things, some of that tragic, to be honest, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to let that consume me, consume me or optimize me. I wanted to let that drive me propelling forward. One of the things I've learned, she had a book that I picked up while I was in the pandemic, right before we started Brexit, was a book called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, yes, Emperor of Rome. Yeah, and uh, one of the quotes that he has there is that the impediment to action, a batch action, stands in the way, becomes the way. And that really resonated with me, Doug, because like every single obstacle I, I've had in my life, I always approached it in a way where this can be an impediment or this can be the way and it can be a step that you can use step on as opposed to be blocked by. And, and that's something that I've always kind of had near and near in my heart and something that I try to kind of bestow upon other people. Well, and I think that speaks to me because so in my situation, right, I had a 20-year corporate career then I got laid off during the pandemic and I had to swim my way through 25 million other unemployed people. To try, you know, and I have, you know, had a spouse, kids, had a big house, had a yard, had a dog. Both the kids, you know, actually had two dogs, two cats, and eight chickens, and both the kids were in private school. So we had a whole bunch of costs. And I'm like, how am I going to do all this? But it's like you said, what stands in the way becomes the way. In my case, I have to figure out how to get a tremendous amount done on side hustles in a disturbingly small amount of time. And so what that means is that that pressure ends up being the kind of the sharpening stone for a just tremendous amount of automation and discipline that ends up being necessary. Yes. Because yes, if I was going to do it again, yes, I would rather just focus on the stuff, but that's not where I'm at. And I love my kids. They're my heart, but I'm starting in the middle of my life as opposed to the the beginning of it. But there are things that I'll bring that somebody who's say 25 won't necessarily have yet. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I think that's one of the things I've learned that is probably the single biggest lessons. Just just reframing how you look at problems. Yeah. And feeling all the feels. I mean, we live in a culture that's very much in a culture that we go to clear point. But I think, you know, sitting with that emotion, internalizing it, being okay with it, and then kind of channeling that emotion from anger towards action and pushing it forward and just kind of seeing, channeling all of that fuel towards that. Mm-hmm. 
I've always said the best revenge is massive. So just focus on being massively successful what you're doing. Yeah. One of the things I've always wondered, so because you're talking about like outrage culture and I try not to go on too many social channels, but like one of the things I'll see is, you know, say somebody will get laid off and they'll do like a 20 paragraph post on LinkedIn. And I'm like, okay, my first thought is I'm like, who are you expecting to hire you if you just, if you just wrote two and a half pages dogging on your past employer? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they weren't the great, greatest place in the world yeah. to work, but I mean, maybe I'm just like the Gen Xness in me because we were all raised, but it's basically you, you work really hard. You don't complain. You basically do that, like completely ignore any other form of mental health or psychological safety or anything like that. You're just supposed to not nose the grindstone all the time, which of course is horribly unhealthy, but that's how we were raised. So I'm like, okay, is that me just projecting my bias or, but I'm not really seeing what the end game is for some of these posts that I see. No, I think I ever seen you read Abraham Lincoln, uh, biography and he has an interesting take on this. He would sit his, his nightstand. He would write these long, angry letters uh-huh. and just expressing his anger and he would recite it to him. And then he would take that letter and then just store it. And intended to know. And the anger stored in only his wife. Me. Like, and that's actually, I wound up you now writing the book. Like, I wound up journaling all my struggles, my rejections from investors. I wound up pitching to 400 investors. Uh, we, you know, we wound up raising a lot of money. We raised tens of millions of dollars, but we, that took a lot of rejections as well. But I would write all these angry, like, posts on an Evernote, and, I, and nobody saw it. And then 10 years later, I turned those posts. I reconstructed them into story format and, and out came the book. So I use OneNote similar to Evernote for my journaling. And I've noticed that over time, my journals have kind of spread and morphed out. And so I was like, okay, if I ever wanted to organize these so that I could publish them, I'd need like a week of just organizing yeah. all the stuff that I've written <laughs> or located at. Yeah. The thing about that, Doug, is like they're super. Like it captures, it's like a snapshot. It captures, it's almost a snapshot of your brain and your psyche and your well being at that time. And it's like raw honesty on filter. And yet there's no, there's nothing but truth behind it. So that's why I, that's awesome. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about what you have going on today. Yeah. So I have a book coming out. It's called The Young Buck Founder, coming out September 19th. And what, what inspired me to write the book is I felt like, there's a lot of great stories about entrepreneurship. There's a lot of great stories about people of color, the immigrant story, but there's never mm-hmm. been a, one story about a person, that, person of color that comes from property, immigrant, that's built a sizable business, uh, sold to a Portuguese company. And part of the story, it's, it's around like my journey as an immigrant growing up and projects. And big part of it is, you know, the ebbs and flows of that business. I think what you read on TechCrunch, what you read on LinkedIn, that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. I talk about everything underneath the iceberg, all the ups and flows, all the struggles. And, you know, one of the things I've learned by talking to other entrepreneurs who also be successful, it's more common, it's more, very common among successful founders to struggle massively, to go through mental health issues, to go through rounds of layoff, failure, seven to 10 years, and wind up building out, you know, a sizable list. So I figured if that's, more of the rules and the exception than other people see about it. And the thing I've learned, Doug, the last few years, after we sold the business, we sold in 2021, is that vulnerability to super people, young founders, feel empowered when you're vulnerable because they can't relate to you. you. Like, this person is me. I can be like him because he's also failing. 
So if I can just keep doing what I'm doing, I can get to that level. I didn't mean to cut you off. There's just one thing I was thinking. I feel like it's waste inside of what you're saying, because one of the things that's always bothered me is, you know, because I feel like a lot of times you'll read a book by somebody who's been really successful and what they'll talk about is like what they're doing now. And I'm like, okay, well, if I'm trying to go from zero to really successful, what you're doing after you're successful doesn't matter. It's the, I have absolutely nothing, the path from there to, I have a successful business. Not, I already have a successful business. Now I want to make it more successful. Exactly. That doesn't help. That's Peter Thiel said, zero to one. That's the part that's really important. Yeah. So I'll focus on, I want to meet people where they are, not where I am. Yeah, exactly. You read here, like, you know, like some of the examples that I cite in the book, like, say, like losing a round of financing, buying your sibling, you know, like getting a, a lawsuit. You do a down round. I mean, I don't know if you ever had to do any of those, but yeah, those could be tough too, you know, if your valuation goes down for a financing round. So going through all those ups and flows, all the ups and downs, more downs than ups, I think that's where people really feel like related. And there haven't been too many stories like that. And, you know, I, Actually, I hope that people. I disagree. I think that if you tell basically any business story, like without sweeping the losses under the rug, there would be more downs than ups. I think in almost every case, I think the thing that's different is when you're talking about, you know, kind of business startup world is that, you know, when you using baseball metaphor, right? You know, when you hit the ball over the fence, you don't get one run, you get like 10,000 runs, right? Home runs have really high returns in business. And so, you know, you can go years, decades, one home run and you're fine. The problem is you just don't know when it's going to come. Yeah, exactly. And the, the power law dynamics build over into the press and recover start well. Like you never hear a TechCrunch article say company XYZ raised Series A, but also got rejected by 150 investors. You don't you don't read that second part. You don't read that part. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, and so what happens is the founder reads the article and it's like, we need to be like that. Why am I not raising ten million dollar round? What's wrong with me? And they don't know that ninety nine percent of that came from like going through what they're going. And I've discovered like the relief that's really impactful for people is not the success of the failure, right? You know, success inspired by failure. I, I talk about a lot about that in my own personal shortcomings as a CEO throughout the book. Yeah. All right. So, okay, well, uh, give us a couple of those lessons. I mean, particularly in the scrapping phase, right? You don't have a lot of resources. You're putting in a lot of time. You're not getting any results. This is the swamp that everybody has to go through, right? You know, it's like, as I'm fond of saying, right, you have, you have a bright idea, you start a business. Well, you know, you don't immediately start being able to pay all the bills. You, you, you go negative for like zero to 200 months. Yeah, no, absolutely. Or it turns around and you don't know when the end of that swamp is going to be. So yeah, when you're in the middle of that swamp, that's the hard part. What is your observation for how you get through that? So that some of the most common mistakes that a lot of young founders that I talk to make it is number one is that they treat their startup like a business, not like an experiment. So they think, oh, I have this idea. It's automatically a business. When I have a business, I need to be making money. It is not that at all. There's a startup. It is novel and it's an experiment. And you treat it as such. And when you treat it like an experiment, the result is not money. It's less findings. I found XYZ work. And that didn't work. Next experiment. Now you need to get into that mindset, kind of cycling, iterating through several experiments until something hits. 
And sometimes the experiment may work for a little bit and it may not work for you. And you have to be okay with that. And you're raising capital to run more experiments until you get to like series A. Uh-huh. And uh, another mistake that a lot of founders make, and, and this is kind of more mid-stage founders, is that they raise capital, feel like they're right because they just raise capital, and they immediately take that capital and pour it into several different products, different features, different markets, instead of naming one thing at a time. You know, I cite so many examples of so many great companies like Airbnb and Stripe. Like Airbnb at the beginning was just an actual like air bed that you would stay in. And it was yeah, all the air was it was an air mattress in their spare bedroom. Yeah. And it was only for conferences in San Francisco. And that's what it was for like a year. And then the next thing after that was be you know, you could rent the whole house and, and for a long time it was just renting apartments until they excited expanding into other things but by then they expanded to other things they were already and the same thing applies to to netflix who was kind of you know cd delivery only for like six seven years until streaming took off. so a lot of people see the companies now i have a funny netflix story sorry 30 second derivation so but a friend of mine worked at was at wyden kennedy when netflix was basically still in a strip mall in uh you know in the bay area and so, because I think he said Dan Wyden was trying to get him to get on the phone and get Reed to pay his bills. And so, like years later, they were like, you know, if we just taken one percent equity, we could basically like buy the entire city. It's our mall. It's our mall. Just taking one percent equity instead of trying to get him to pay a three thousand dollar invoice, we could basically own all of the real estate, exactly you know, our building, and ten blocks in every direction. Easy, man. So that's total non sequitur to the story, but it's just funny. Yeah. Yeah, man. But uh, yeah, just so common mistakes that a lot of like smart founders or funded make that I made, right? This comes from experience after we had raised kind of our series A. So just common mistakes that I feel like want to make sure that people learn about it. You know, I'm going into depth as to how I made the mistakes. So hopefully they can get to success faster. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, Adrizio. Great conversation today. Give us your last one or two thoughts and then let everybody know where they can learn more, especially where they can find the, uh, the, get on the list for your book. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Doug. Yeah, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, the obstacle is the way, you know, everybody goes through obstacle as you guys across the bear. And Ryan Holiday did not pay him to say that. Yeah. I love that book. I've read all Holiday, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> which I've read, read all his books. Clearly. Yeah. But yeah, I think that you can always, when something bad happens, you can either make it a burden or you can make, make it a watch back. It's, all, it's up to you and all about the attitude. Uh, yeah, and, and the book comes out on Tuesday, September 19th. You can find it on Amazon or you can just go to my website, EndriciaDelacruz.com. Perfect. Well, Edricio, really appreciate your time today. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much, Doug. All right. I will talk to you later. Thank you so much for listening to the People First Leaders podcast. If you are a successful People First founder or CEO who would like to be on this show, please visit peoplefirstleaders.net forward slash guest. If this interview resonated, would you please share it on social media? Just take a quick screenshot on your phone and post it on your favorite social channel. Then make sure to tag me at Doug Value so I can give you and your business a shout out on a future episode. If you know somebody who'd be a great guest, please tag them on social and include the hashtag peoplefirstleaders. I really love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. 
We're releasing new content and episodes all the time. So make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show, and they mean a lot to me personally. And also, I would like to connect with you on social. My handle is at Doug Value, or you can just go to peoplefirstleaders.net where all of the links are posted. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.